0: How do we equip our families with a biblical worldview? How do we prepare the next generation for life? How do I grow in my walk with the Lord and in my marriage? If you wrestle with these questions, you are in the right place to find answers. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rutherford, and today, I'm interviewing Rory Groves. Rory is the author of Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time, and he and his wife are the founders of the Grovestead. Two quick items before we get to our interview. First, go to our website at www.entrustingthefaith.com, scroll down to the bottom, and sign up for our weekly emails so that you'll know who is coming up on the podcast for the week and who you may have missed the previous week. You'll also get a free resource when you do. Second, this episode is brought to you by my book, Leading Well at Home, How Husbands and Fathers Can Biblically Lead Their Families. Have you ever thought, I want to be a godly husband or father, but I don't know where to start? Have you ever heard that you need to do something to equip your family, but did not know how to begin? Well, if so, Leading Well at Home will show you how you can love Jesus Christ, love and serve your wife and children, and take responsibility for discipling your family. You'll be encouraged and given action steps that you can apply so that you are moving forward. You can buy it online or through our website at entrustingthefaith.com or leadingwellathome.com or anywhere books are sold online. And You can also get a free excerpt on our website. Okay, let's jump into our interview today.
1: Rory, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Uh,
0: I, I was excited. I read the synopsis, started looking at your material and thought, man, this will be um, not only wonderful to learn you know, face-to-face, me personally, but the audience as well. So, um, I'm excited. Great, um, me too. Now, before we get to the grovestead, which I definitely want to get to because it, it sounds fascinating, what was kind of the impetus for writing Durable Trades?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, the Grovestead is basically our our little family farm and our uh, little home economy here that we're trying to get off the ground. And when we first moved out here nine years ago, we we're in southern Minnesota. I was a computer programmer and had been my entire career. The impetus for the book was really kind of born out of the experience of moving out into this uh, rural setting trying our hands at farming a little bit, uh, raising some animals and then starting to raise our family in a way where our work was really more integrated with the family than what I was used to doing in my corporate job or my cubicle job. When I did the computer work, even when I worked from home, I was always having to leave my family to do the actual work and then, you know, rejoin the family at the end of the day or spend some time in the evenings or the weekends. But, uh, when I was here on the farm and we were doing things here, whether it was you know fencing animals or gardening or any number of things that we were doing out here, all of that work, which was very real work, and it is real work for many people, the whole family was integrated the whole time. And we were just really enjoying um, not just the, the product or in the produce of what we were doing here on the farm, But that time together was just irreplaceable. And so I kind of had this contrast um, in my life as I was going to work to leave the family, but then I was doing a different kind of work where it was uniting the family. And I kind of got to the point where I just started to ask, are there professions out there for people like me who want to spend time with their families instead of being divided from their families in order to do their work? And that was kind of compounded with the aspect of me being a computer programmer and in technology where everything is constantly going obsolete. And anyone out there who works in IT knows exactly what I mean. I mean, every you know couple of months practically, but at least every couple of years, there's an entire turnover in computer languages, and technology, and networking equipment. Uh, there's new threats that appear on the horizon all the time. And that vocation, you know, after 20 years of that, I just got tired of the things that I was creating going obsolete so quickly. And so that was the other component. When when I wrote the book Durable Trades, I was really after those two things. Are there vocations where I can put my time towards something that will last and build something that will last? And is it possible to do it together as a family?
0: That's powerful. The idea of putting your time towards something that will last, but not simply your time, but making sure that it's something as a family uh, you can do together. So is that kind of how you would define durable trades as something that, you know, sort of lasts the test of time or lasts much longer than very much the IT and, and really this
1: almost disposable culture we're in. Yeah. That's yeah that's it the subtitle for the book is family centered economies that have stood the test of time and the idea is just is exactly that the average uh, career or the average person works seven careers in their lifetime that's according mm-hmm. to the bureau of labor statistics and they change jobs within those careers multiple times so you know as opposed to a situation where you might be working in a multi-generational family business, you know, passed down from your grandfather to the to the to the father to the son to the grandson, all of these uh, fourth and fifth generation businesses, which were the norm really before the Industrial Revolution for all of history. Uh, today, we have a situation where you can't even last seven years or more in the same profession without completely retraining or overhauling or disposing of what you spent the last seven years creating. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. The the disposable culture that we live in today really lends itself to just a high amount of turnover and a lot of job dissatisfaction because people find themselves in these very disposable positions. And, you know, it's not to say that work is, isn't meaningful. It is, but there, you can sense that if you're creating something that's going to be around for a while. It has a different feel than something that you know is going to be thrown out after the next I don't know, invention comes along.
0: Uh, that's true, and there is something about whether it's building, whether it's forming, whether it's growing, um, you know, a variety of different things, that, that long-term aspect you know, I feel much more satisfied at least in knowing that that it's going to be used. It's going, going it has purpose for at least a long period of time or longer period. Whereas I know there are some things I work on that it's for today and in a month it's done and it's like, okay, well, that didn't really make, make okay. much difference, or at least it doesn't right. feel that way.
1: There's a tradesman I interviewed for the book. He was a Sawyer and then we interviewed him for the chapter on Sawyer, lumber milling, and he said his, he, he was very much like me. He worked full-time in IT and he spent a summer building a cabin up in, uh, or, or I should say, refinishing a, a, a building, a schoolhouse mm-hmm. into a cabin in Wisconsin. And he spent the whole summer uh, tearing apart these walls to rebuild this old century old uh, schoolhouse uh, and to remodel it and so forth. And he said, when he tore the, the veneer off the walls, the planks off the walls, he found a signature of the man who built that structure. And it really stunned him because he said, here was a building that I was repurposing and going to continue to use here a hundred years after it was built and autographed by the man who built it a hundred years ago. And when I write a line of code, it's already dead by the time it hits the hard drive in other words you know it's already obsolete he knows that everything that he's building will will barely last and that really made a mark on him and he ended up actually buying a professional grade lumber mill and now he does lumber milling and saw milling as a part-time profession for him but that's just kind of a, some of the contrast about uh, kind of knowing and feeling that the the energy and your time that you're putting into something over over the period of your life, is it contributing to something that's going to last or is it just going to get thrown out? Wow. That is, that's a
0: strong example. That's a challenging example for me just in, in legacy building, you know, in terms of looking at your family and looking at what kind of legacy you want to build, but at the same time, the very work that you are doing, because sometimes I know I forget that, uh, the Lord created work before sin came into the world. It was the sin that made the work hard and unpleasant. Mm. But yeah, we are made for work and for labor. But trying to do that good kind of
1: labor, you know, that that lasts. You talk. One thing I, oh, yeah, one please. thing I just time in on that, that that comes to mind as we're talking here is that, you know, the relationships, any time that you put into relationships, are eternal, right? Mm. They're lasting for eternity. And so if you find yourself, and in my case, I was looking for kind of work where I could work together with my family. And it wasn't so much whether we're building an old schoolhouse or, you know, doing something that will last on the earth for a long time. I mean, that, that has merit too. But if I'm building relationships with my sons and daughters and my wife, those are eternal. I mean, that's eternally significant. And there's nothing more durable or worth putting your time into uh, as a Christian there is really nothing that's going to matter as much as those relationships. So to me, it's kind of a dual purpose thing. You're you're both creating stability in your family and permanence in the world, but there's also the relationships which go beyond that. It's true.
0: And that's something, you know, me personally wrestled with, um, you know, through COVID, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, my day job has I'm working from home uh, where I was not before, you know, I was commuting, you know, two hours and change. You know, total. You know, an hour in, hour and fifteen, hour and twenty back, and missing not only the the work time at home and being around family, but then the commute time as well. And and always, you know, sort of like I need to do something different, and the Lord sort of changed that at least temporarily. And so, you know, that's been nice as we're looking ahead. You know, talking with the guys, and you know, they they're on the road. You know, five six days a week, and it's like. Man, you're missing like the important stuff. Like that job eternally doesn't matter like
1: what your family is is exactly what you're saying. I mean, the way our economy is arranged right now, the family really is competition to corporations. In other words, the corporation would would prefer to have as much of your full-time attention as possible. And for that matter, so would, Uh, Hollywood and the entertainment industry and the sports industry. I mean, all of these different institutions are really arrayed to, and you think about it, to divide the family. They have segregated entertainment programming, right? Kids programming, adults programming, men, women. All of these things are really dialed in to try to maximize your attention as an individual. There's very little out there in the modern culture that is trying to reinforce the family and trying to build and and uh, uh, create deeper relationships between each other outside of the church. Really,
0: mm. that's true. I had not thought about that. You know, just thinking about focused attention on an individual level and not doing anything at all with the family. That's I had not thought
1: of it in that way. But that that's absolutely true. You know, when when Jesus said that. Uh, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. When he says that the two shall become one, that's our clue that God views the family as a complete unit, right? Mm-hmm. As an inseparable unit. It is not part of God's design to have the family split apart and to spend most of their waking hours apart from each other. It, that's completely opposite of the idea of cleaving together and becoming one flesh. And so, and the same transcends into your children, bringing up your children, um, having them with you so that you're able to disciple your children uh, as you're rising up and as you're lying down, as you're walking by the way. And as you're coming and you're going, you're teaching the laws of God to your children. And how are you going to do that if you're commuting and working 60 hours a week away from your family? How is that going to happen? Right? Someone else is going to have to step in and do that for you. And, or, or it doesn't happen at all. And so God's heart is for the family to be unified and to be together. And the reality is, is and we haven't gotten into the book too much, but Historically, that's how it always happened, and for a thousand years, for 1500 years or more, really, that's how Christianity was spread from generation to generation. It was families in the family centered economy or the home economy that were reinforcing the bonds of relationships, and they were not only working together but they were passing on the faith and they were mentoring, they were discipling as they were working because that's the true thing that happens while you're working together. Right. You're just you're you're modeling your faith. You're modeling who you are to your children or to your neighbors in your community.
0: It's true. It's not simply the skill set of the work that you're doing. though that is something that is learned and passed on. But it is it's those conversations as you're going. It's the being able to have those Christ focused conversations about about life, about creation, about God, about why we're doing this, about his beauty in the world around us. All of that fits together. It is. It's that very much that mentoring kind of, of thing, not simply,
1: again, work related, but like you say, it's it's faith related. It's mm. family related. Work is just the context and what I believe is an ideal context but it's a context for passing on the faith. So it happens as you're working, as you're walking, by the way, as you're swinging the hammer, as you're laying the brick, as you're putting up the structure, or tending the animals or whatever the whatever the vocation is. If you're doing it together, there are those opportunities uh, to be discipling your children. I like that. And
0: that is true, that as you go... Uh, and just bringing them alongside. I was I was having a conversation with a friend last night, and that was something he was talking about. Is yeah, he has five boys. Uh, I've got um, I've got two girls and a boy, and his we're in about the same age range. And that was something he uh, he was telling me is like he's now helping to bringing his sons along as Fantastic. as they're you know of age and as they're able in whatever they're doing. Yes. Uh, and so it, it was a good reminder
1: to me that I need to make sure I'm doing that as well. Absolutely. I mean, I would say even if your children have no aptitude or interest in the actual vocation that you're practicing as a parent, absolutely teach them what you're doing. Teach them your trade because you know the trade and you love your children. And so you're the perfect person to mentor them to that point, like if a father is maybe a carpenter and the son doesn't want to go into that line of work, teach them how to build, right? I mean, they're probably going to learn it anyway. I don't know if you'll have any carpenters who's, <laughs> who's not going to rope their children into a building project, but the point is teach them what you know, so that at least they have that skill because you're the best one to teach them that. And chances are, and the historical norm would be that they will pick up that trade and you'll be an ideal mentor to help them kind of smooth out that transition from coming out from under one home and establishing a new home.
0: That's an excellent point too. It's helping them through that transition uh, because that's ultimately what we're called to do, right? To become an adult, to move out, to have our own job, our own work, our own family. Uh, And so it, I think right now we're in, we seem to miss that step. You know, it's like you're supposed to grow up and then you miss that transition. There's no, there's no formal transition to make
1: that smooth. And what you're talking about would, would help tremendously. Well, we delegate it now Mm -hmm. because we specialize. This is what we do in modern economies. We specialize. So we, we have experts that will take care of the transition period, which we generally consider to be college, right? So you say, if you find the right college or you find a, a good professors or or what have you, they'll do the job of transitioning and preparing your children for life. But that's a job that God gave parents. They're the ones that really need to take that as take the lead on that, whether or not they involve higher education or not. Um, that transition, you are uniquely gifted both to train your children in the faith, but train them in the work and train them for life. That is, that is the calling that is parenting. And God has put that on every parent and he's enabled you. Don't surrender to the experts, right? You are able to do that. You're able to educate your own children. You're able to take them to work with you you're able to prepare them for life. You as ver- as virtue of having these children that God gave to you, you are able to do these things. You don't have to rely on specialized experts to do it for you.
0: That is true and that's one of the things, you know, cuz we homeschool and so one of the things that we wrestled with early on and I think I think many homeschool families, you know, always ask that question, am I doing it right? Mm-hmm. Am I doing it well? But we've been doing it now for I'll just call it a bunch of years. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. In that very same breath, it was that idea of we will do it well because people have been teaching their children for, you know, hundreds and hundreds, you know, since Christ, since before. It's just what you do. Right. And they learn from you just like they learn how to eat. They learn how to dress themselves. Like you say, spending the extra time with them. Mm -hmm. That's priceless.
1: Absolutely. It really is. Yeah, we homeschool as well, too, and it's been really wonderful for our family. Both my wife and I were raised in public schools and we decided to homeschool and it has been it's been such a rewarding experience and yeah, I would completely agree with what you said. You you as parents are able and capable and you're actually the only ones in the world that God chose to educate those children. If you think about it, If he wanted another set of people to educate those children, he would have given it to them. So you do have the ability, with God's grace, to raise them up, not only prepare them academically or prepare them for life, but to prepare their hearts and their souls spiritually for what God wants them to do in the world. That is absolutely true. One thing that fascinated
0: me, well, many things about the book fascinate me, but you talked about, and you mentioned a little bit ago, that specialization Mm-hmm. Idea. And so you talk some about complexity and specialization and how that's sort of been inverted. And mm-hmm. I know we've sort of touched on that a little bit here. How would you describe that or elaborate on that a little bit and what that kind of what the effects are?
1: Well, I, I assume you're kind of uh referring to the illustration of the pyramid, the inverted yeah. pyramid. So we have um in a stable society, and for most of human history, we had. What you'd have is a broad base of a society working in uh, first sector activities, which is uh, very close to the land. So farming, uh, raising animals, uh, uh, forestry, mining, the kinds of things that are just raw extraction of resources from the earth. And on top of that, if that was the base of the pyramid, then on top of that, you would have manufacturing, right? So people who take the raw materials, turn it into something useful. And then as a third at the top of that pyramid or triangle, you would have um, the services industry. Mm-hmm. Those are people that are facilitating a lot of the higher level. So banking and education and scientific endeavors and some of those kinds of things. And they're, they're a smaller portion right? Uh, as you go up the triangle or you go up the pyramid. And that's how it's historically been. I forget the exact percentages. I could, I could try to look it up quick, but you have something like 80% of the society or maybe 70% of the society involved in in first, first tier, first sector activities. And a fewer and fewer as you get up to the top and you have an extremely and inherently stable society that way, today, and that's how our society was circa, you know, 1633 to 1800. Today, that triangle or pyramid has been inverted where we have 2% of the population involved in first sector activities. It's a tiny minuscule portion that are feeding and providing the raw materials for the rest of us. We have a very small uh, manufacturing base as compared to what we had historically had even 50 years ago and, uh, and a massively huge services industry, right? I mean, everyone is involved in banking or healthcare or sales, or a lot of these tertiary sectors. And then we also have the uh, quaternary sector, which is the knowledge workers, and that's on top of that. So you have all of this other uh, base of society that is resting on this minuscule portion. And what that really means is that we're relying on the rest of the world to supply a lot of our raw materials, a lot of our manufacturing, and as we found out, during COVID. And as we're continuing to find out in the aftershocks is that if that supply chain gets disrupted, it really upsets the entire society. So, I mean, you go to the grocery store and you can't find food or in the case right now where we have, there's not enough meat in the store shelves. So there's skyrocketing prices for meat and different food products that sometimes go scarce. That's because we're not inherently making our own materials anymore extracting our own materials so that that is you kind of a, a a way to kind of illustrate that it's really a fragile i believe setup where we are prone to have problems continually as things get disrupted because we don't have enough people involved in these primary sector activities and in these manufacturing activities and there's a lot of talk lately about re-domesticating manufacturing right china's making so much of what we need and we really got into a bind over that over the last year and a half. And so there's talk about, you know, re- bringing manufacturing back and Trump was trying to do that. And but these things, they take decades. I mean, it, it didn't go away overnight and it's not going to come back overnight. You have to to build the manufacturing capacity for a nation. It takes decades. So there aren't any short-term fixes to this. I'm just merely pointing out the problem in an effort to say, there are opportunities for individual families to begin to reclaim stability in their lives. I mean, of course, farming is one way to do it. You can grow your own food, and that insulates you from the shocks in the supply chain as it pertains to food. But that's that's kind of the, I guess, the long-winded version of the illustration <laughs> I summed up with many fewer words in the book. No, but it's it was eye-opening too, because even
0: you, know, you think about it, not only the stability of the family but the stability of the marketplace the stability of the economy is a, 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 kind of like what you were talking about as you begin delegating too many things away whether that's work whether that's manufacturing whether that's farming whether that's um, whatever you lose that stability and I thought it was I thought it was a really fascinating point that really kind of was made me, Ask what am I doing? What are we doing as a family that we can, you know, sort of bring things back in house, if you will? I can't remember the number of trades you list
1: in the book. Yeah, sixty-one in total.
0: Sixty-one in total, and you also have them in different categories, right? Right. So there's like, is there like a like a top twenty, and then the right. honorable mentions, right? So right. can you kind of give a quick breakdown of what? How did a trade make it to your list? And what put it sort of in the top or what was an honorable mention?
1: Uh, I'll just uh, clarify our previous conversation. In 1900, I just looked it up. Approximately primary, secondary, and tertiary sectors of the economy. So that would be your agriculture, your manufacturing, and your your services industries were about 30% each uh, in terms of the distribution of employment in 1900. Today, or in 2010, we have less than 2% of the workforce uh, employed in agriculture, less than about, I think we're somewhere below 10% in manufacturing and a good 60, 70% in services and about 15% in knowledge worker activities. And so just that difference between a 30% base down to a 2% base is a really, really significant uh, shift demographically for a society and it really hasn't been that long for 300 years we were working much closer to the land and just in really the last 100 years we have shifted way more rapidly wow. into higher levels of the sector and it continues to get more specialized the further we go so okay so circling back to how how is the book divided so so the the way I did this is I wanted to research what trades were durable what trades were available to someone Today, I know that some trades were historically durable, but what's still durable today after the Industrial Revolution, right? because that was the great upset, that was the watershed event in human history is what some uh, secular historians would call that, because it upset so many societies and it created so much upheaval that really there's kind of a pre and post Industrial Revolution world that we're still walking out. So what I did is I looked at all the trades that were around before the industrial revolution that are still around today. And then i made a list of all those trades. I came up with a list of 61. So they've survived for at least 230 years since the founding of our country because roughly 1790 is roughly when they um, established the starting point for the industrial revolution. And uh, then I rank them because like we had talked about earlier, I didn't want to know just what was the most durable, but also what's the most family centered. Because I wanted to do something with my family. And I wanted to know what kind of income you can earn and how hard is it to start a business in that uh, trade. So I came up with a number of criteria to score each trade. And then I rank them in the book in order from most durable, most family centered to least. So the ones in the first the top twenty, so to speak, are are basically the durable trades. they're uh, they've stood the test of time, they make uh, a, a livable income, they're very family centered. And then the ones that are at the bottom of the list, the you know the last ten, for example, they're still very durable in the sense that they've been around for a long time, but they may not be very family centered mm-hmm. or they may be very difficult to start a new business in or very expensive to start a new business in but still they make the cut as an honorable mention.
0: So the top 20 are really the most family-centered. You can make a living at it. Family-centered, durable, still sure. from pre, uh, from before Industrial Revolution to today. Uh, for everybody listening, can you name off two or three of those? Are there, are there oh, some sure. that, that are yeah. your
1: favorites? or you like most or, or found most interesting? What, what did you? Well, yeah. The, uh, the one thing I'd say is in the top 20, What's most interesting is food, fiber, and shelter rises to the top on this list. Really? In other words, the trades that are catering to core human needs, those are the ones that not only prove, prove to be the most resilient over time, but they're also the most family-centered. And I kind of find that interesting. So you have things like butcher, shepherds, of course, carpenters, I've already mentioned that, farmers, cooks, people who prepare food and innkeepers are in there. Um, Even uh, language interpreters have been incredibly Mm -hmm. durable going back to roughly, you know, the ancient Egyptian empire. Many of these trades, most of these trades that are in this book, if they were around in 1790, they were around in 2000 BC as well. I mean, they go, they're incredibly durable trades and then all likelihood they're going to be around for a long time to come.
0: That is fascinating i i know i i just want to encourage everybody listening to you know definitely check it out because we don't think just sort of in our day-to-day life i know those types of things have never really popped into my head is like what what has lasted you know what is something because we all you know we hear numbers like oh you know we don't even know how many careers and how many jobs are going to be, that haven't even been invented yet, that are going to happen in 10 years. And so hearing that there's things that last Mm -hmm. uh, is very
1: powerful. And the thing I'd chime in on that too, is we have roughly 30,000 occupations to choose from today. In 1790, we had about 70. So think about that. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So if you were a young person being raised, right, in in around the time of the Revolutionary War, you had a pretty good handle on all the possibilities that you could go into. You knew people working in them. You had the opportunity to see what they looked like long before you ever went off to get a college degree or work a couple of years in the trade. You you had a sense of what these were doing and, and if this was something that would be a good fit for what you felt called to in life. Today, I mean, you just don't know. This stuff changes so rapidly. There are dozens of professions invented every day. And the other thing that's very interesting is that so many, if not, I mean, almost all of the professions that were spawned by the Industrial Revolution were eventually destroyed by the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. It has that creative destruction aspect to it where it's constantly reinventing uh, a better way to do something, a more useful and a more efficient way to do something. And that necessitates destroying old professions which did not have that level of efficiency. We tend to look at things about you know whatever is new and and novel, but I'm saying let's look back to the past, look at the old paths. These are novel right now because they have stood the test of time. And I may add, they're not necessarily low paying jobs. Some of these are incredibly lucrative positions, which I wouldn't advocate that as a sole reason to pursue a career. But some of these professions, especially right now during this uh, kind of season of uncertainty that we're in, there's so much demand for trades and people who know and have these uh, uh, manual trades uh, skill sets that you can hardly even find contractors to work on your house or, you know, to do these things without pain an arm and a leg.
0: That is true. It is. We are going in that direction, just becoming more and more Mm -hmm. uh, and more and more difficult to find. Let me, let me transition just briefly to the grovestead. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about what you talked a little bit about starting it. Um, What was it like when you made that transition? Because, you career IT person which I can respect I've been in marketing and data so but then you you acquired a farm you started raising animals you started doing some farming what was that like
1: yeah i mean we definitely approached it as a hobby at first i mean it, you know it was a quintessential hobby farm even down to the honeybees and it was it was a gradual process we've been here 9 years Um, but we did have a strong drive. I especially had a strong drive to learn how to become more self-sufficient. So that was really driving us. I wanted to learn how to grow my own food and how to tend animals and raise animals for food and just be closer to the land. I guess if that makes sense, I was raised in the suburbs and we lived in Minneapolis before we moved out here. I just kind of had this desire to have some more space and to be able to kind of be more in tune. I think sometimes in the city you can really be out of tune with nature because everything is um, air conditioned or heated uh, and uh, you know you have roads and sidewalks and it's almost like nature is boxed in on these city street boulevards but it's very, it's not wild (laughs) in any stretch you get out in the country a little bit and uh, nature is allowed to be wild again. And I just wanted to be a little bit more uh, close to that in God's creation, just to experience it. And so what happened was I didn't really think my vocation would change all that much. I just thought I'd keep this as a hobby, but really what happened was there was something incongruent about the way I was working. And like the the things that I was pursuing to earn money, which was high technology and the fulfillment that I had from working on the land. And I couldn't, I couldn't quite shake it. Yes. We wanted to be more self-sufficient, have our own food and kind of regain some of these skill sets, these homesteading skill sets. But there was also a way of life and kind of a pace of life that was very gratifying, very fulfilling. And as I've already talk to very unifying for our family I mean we could we can point to so many things I'm looking out the window right now at our barn and I we can point to so many things on this property and everything that's here we did it together with some combination of the family and so that kind of thing uh, just drew me more and more into considering farming and shepherding and some of the other, Types of things that we've been doing here. As um, I, I should mention that the Grovestead is we we host workshops on homesteading topics, and we've host like summer camps and different types of things too to try to share this experience with others. That's part of our heart too, um, and so that's what we've. That's kind of a, a gradual process and a journey we've been on. Um, I still do technology consulting, but it's a very very limited part time basis as much as I'm able to. Um, I'm investing in our farm and, and uh, the grovestead side of things.
0: So you kind of, you had a vision for where you really wanted to be. And then you just began that gradual process of going in that direction. Uh, but it sounds like very rewarding, not only doing things as a family, but being able to, you know, to do, to have those faith conversations day in, day out learning skills day in, day out. I'm sure Giving your kids, I'm sure have, have benefited greatly from it. Just that, uh, that competency Mm -hmm. kind of aspect of, Hey, I can, I help build a barn. I know how to raise animals. I know how to fix a fence. I know. I mean, is that true? It it seems like that.
1: Oh, there's, there's such a broad base of, knowledge transfer happening here. The funny thing is that my kids, I mean, they're so much further ahead than I was at their ages. My oldest is 10. And um, I built my, I built a cabin when we first moved out here because we didn't have enough space in the house for me to have like a dedicated office. So I built a cabin. It was my first building project. I was 35 and it was the first time I used power tools. I mean, I will not use them, but first time I bought a set of power tools. Mm-hmm. I just, I tepidly used some power, borrowed power tools from time to time before that. But, you know, I was, I was typical in the sense that I always hired out the work that I didn't know how to do. i never, I didn't spend too much time trying to learn it. So anyway, I I kind of taught myself some basic carpentry skills, building that cabin. My son is nine, was nine. He's 10 this year, but when I wrote the book, he was nine and he was, Using power tools, and he's building his own little shanties in the woods and tree forts. And I mean, it's it's just really neat to see. And and his my uh, my daughter, my eight year old daughter, goes out with my wife every morning, and we milk two goats. Uh, we have some Nubian and Toggenberg goats, and so we get all the milk supply that we need from them. But they go out every morning and they sing and they have a good time. Now my five year old oldest daughter is starting to join them as well, and so um, these are just. There, you know, the best way to describe it is to use an agricultural analogy. But when something's growing in the soil, especially like a tree, like an oak tree that takes a long time to grow, it's shooting these roots out, and they it takes a long time for those roots to get established. But once those roots are established and they're strong, that tree can really weather any kind of storm. And, uh, or a lot of storms that it normally would not with a weak and shallow root system. And it can also bear much fruit. And so it's, it's kind of like when people ask me, you know, how did we get from here to there? It's been very gradual and just putting down one root at a time. And a lot of times we're just, it's just the grace of God. We're just trying to follow what we feel is on our heart, praying that God would lead us. And then we're just, taking a risk in one direction and seeing where that goes and then just slowly building one thing after the other. So yeah, there's, there's an immense amount of knowledge transfer, I guess you should say, but it's more because my kids are learning from my mistakes because I'm doing most of the stuff for the first time anyway. So they're learning from my mistakes, but what a neat experience. I mean, talk about life school, right? Talk about education. So they're going to they're uh, use this information for the rest of their lives, and they're going to have this to fall back on if they're ever interested in going in a, a career in this direction. They'll have a great exposure to it. But um, even if they don't, it's just a really rewarding experience, and it's been really good memory-making the whole time. That is true. And that's.
0: it reminds me, too, You, both with you, with your family, you're stepping out in faith, you're willing to take risks. You're willing to learn. I know how I am as I'm trying to learn things. And you know, we're in the middle, I just ripped out some cabinets uh, Sunday and trying to move some things around the kitchen. I sort of know what I'm doing, but we're going to be slow and we're just going to learn it. Great. And, um, That's it. But but it's one of those things where I think sometimes we, and I'll just say, especially guys, we sort of get caught up in, and we get afraid and we aren't willing to try things. And so I, it, it's it's really encouraging to to hear, you know, it's like, hey, I grew up in the suburbs, and we just made this transition, and you're just going for it, right? You're yeah. you're learning as you go, and that's that's powerful, and that teaches your children a lot too. Just, hey, I'm not exactly sure, but we're going to figure it
1: out. You got to take some risks, you know. You take calculated risks. Don't don't quit your job and uh, go buy a. a- an alpaca farm uh <laughs> sight unseen but but you do i mean you do need to take some risks and show your kids that you you can take some risks in life that's okay and what i recommend in the book too is very you know successful businesses they had mentors and so if there's a direction that you want to go whether it's farming or into some kind of some of the trades or something like that I highly recommend people find a trusted mentor who can you can either go to work for and actually learn while you're working and get paid to learn as opposed to, you know, paying a tuition fee somewhere else and then find out after you get your certificate that you don't actually like the work. That's that's a bummer. But yeah, if you can find a mentor because the things that you're describing I, I encounter that all the time because I don't really have any mentors for what I'm doing. I have, I have some generous neighbors that will help me on occasion, but a lot of the stuff I'm learning, it's, it's all first generation. And so it's very difficult and intimidating to do that, but my children, it's not first generation for them. They have a mentor in me now because I've been blazing that trail but if you can find someone, I highly recommend, you know, anyone, even in, in young people and old people, if, if you can follow someone around and, and help them on a job and, and pick up a bit of the expertise that way, that really removes a lot of the intimid, uh, intimidating, you know, uh, overwhelming experience of trying it, you know, your first time and then having to run to YouTube to try to figure out how to undo what you just did. <laughs> YouTube doesn't necessarily make the best mentorship.
0: No, no, it's good to it's good you can troubleshoot, but yeah, uh, but that that is true. It is. I love that that finding a mentor uh, in job in in faith in the church, yeah. building those relationships so that you're learning from other people. I would highly encourage. I appreciate you sharing that too, because I think sometimes, especially we, sometimes even we're afraid to reach out and and you know try and find help. You know, we just sure. assume we can't do it and you know, keep moving. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm, I am I know we're coming to the end of our, our time here. If listeners want to know more about your book or,
1: or about The Grovestead, what you guys are doing, where would you like them to go? Sure. They can come to our website at thegrovestead.com. And uh, we have, the book is available anywhere. So you can get it at your favorite bookstore. Um, you can order it online. We have uh, coupon codes on the website. If we find out about the book being sold at a discount, we post it on the website. So okay. go to the grovestead.com for that. And then, um, we also have, if, if we have any upcoming events, they'll be posted there as well as we write a quarterly newsletter for Christian families. And the goal of that is just to try to share what we're learning in building a new family economy. So this is kind of the mentoring from a distance. Um, but we try to include everything that we're learning about self-sufficiency and homesteading, as well as more um, uh, reflective things we're learning uh, about work and life and family and faith as we kind of live this out on the farm. So anyway, all that you can find at thegrovestead.com.
0: Excellent. Well, I'll make sure for everybody listening, uh, I'll make sure that information's uh, in the show notes. so You can access it. Definitely check it out. Uh, not only the the website the materials uh, the book this is good stuff this is stuff we need to we need to hear and listen to and consider so uh, rory i really appreciate your time today this has been uh, this has been wonderful not only for me but for the audience as well thank you eric i really
1: appreciate it too wow
0: great conversation with rory few things that jumped out at me. First, building relationships with our spouse and with our children, it's eternal. They have eternal significance and nothing is worth more than those relationships, you know, except our relationship with Jesus Christ, that they have that much value. Second, that family is in competition oftentimes to the corporations uh, where we work. Uh, The family is also in competition with entertainment And so we need to be cognizant of that uh, in what we do, the careers we pursue, uh, and how we go about our lives. And third, God views the family as a complete unit and desires it to be unified. And you pass along faith as you work together, modeling it as you go. So great conversation with Rory. Check out his uh, website, the material, all that's in the show notes. I would encourage you to read it, check it out. It is good stuff. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so will help others to find us. Uh, Check out the show notes for resource information. We encourage you to do that for links and other references. We'd like to hear from you so you can message us. Your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, at Entrust the Faith. You can email us at info at entrustingthefaith.com. If you go to our website, which is www.entrustingthefaith.com, you can sign up to our email list and receive free resources as well as upcoming podcast episode information. So check it out. Lastly, just remember, legacies are built a day at a time. So start now.